All right, well, today we wrap up our, our study in Esther. Uh, so if you have a Bible with you, uh, I hope that you do, uh, turn with me to the book of Esther, chapter 9. Um, if you're down on the floor, down here on the third floor, um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, um, you could look that up on your phone. Also, um, there should be a, a hard copy um, of of God's word in the seat back in front of you um, at the lower shelf. So you can go ahead and take one of those um, as well. Open that up to the book, uh, the book of Esther, chapter 9. Um, I want to let you know as well, um, I had someone last, last week ask me, um, how, how can I get a Bible? Uh, they wanted a Bible. They don't have a Bible. Um, and um, if you don't have a Bible, um, A, you uh, you can always download it on your phone or your tablet. Um, if you want a copy of God's Word, though, physical copy, and you don't have one, um, that Bible that is in the pocket uh, in front of you, um, take it. Um, you can have it. Um, I didn't ask anyone's permission if that's allowed, but um, <laughs> but you can have it. Um, and if anyone says anything to me, I'd be like, you don't want people to have the Bible. You know, you see how this goes? Uh, they're going to lose. They're going to lose that conversation. So um, if you want a copy of God's Word, now don't just take it to like, oh, I want another one or I like this color. Um, don't, if you don't have a Bible, um, then, then take that with you, okay? Um, Esther chapter 9. If you've been with us uh, throughout this series, uh, you have seen that Esther is all about the faithful, but often hidden hand of God at work in places and through people that you would least expect. You see, uh, after a hundred years in exile for their disobedience, God's people uh, came under the threat of genocide. Their days were literally numbered. All of them were going to be killed, men, women, children. But even worse than that, um, God seemed far from them. In their, in their view, God had left them, ab- abandoned them. God was silent. But then all that changed through a series of seeming ordinary events, right? There was a spiritual awakening, a king's sleepless night, A five-year-old good deed that finally gets rewarded. There's a couple of, let's call it VIP feasts. There's a sudden execution of a great enemy of the Jews. And there's an edict for Jewish self-defense. We see this amazing, great reversal of things. That against all odds... The Jewish people are no longer on the cusp of extinction. In fact, we read that they they not only survive the genocide, uh, they are now in power. It's an incredible turn of events. Well, then today, the story concludes with the institution of this feast known as the Feast of Purim, which celebrates this great turnaround. In fact, 2,500 years later, to this day, to this very day, Jewish people still celebrate this feast. And with this final section, Esther comes to an end. 
by urging us to remember. That's what today is about. To consider the discipline of remembering. To remember that God is faithful and at work, even though he might seem hidden. To remember that God is faithful and at work, even if you can't imagine what he might be doing. It seems impossible. He is at work. And of course, we know that this message is just is not just about Esther. It's not just for Esther and the people at the time of Esther. It's for us. Because like the Jews that were in exile, we too live in a highly politicized world with politicians of questionable character. Like them, we face difficulty, uh, trials, trouble. Like them, we face hard ethical decisions and can struggle with how to best respond. Uh, Like them, we can face hostility and animosity for our faith. Like them, we can get uh, caught up in circumstances and situations that feel totally out of our control, right? Like them, our motives can be mixed and our hearts can actually be divided. We too can become and sometimes are drawn to compromise, And in a context like that, a context like ours, it's very easy, if we're not careful, to become assimilated to the world's virtues and the world's values. Where before we know it, we've drifted away from what we say that we believe. Unsure of how we got there. That's the story of Esther, and that's often our story as well. And so the question for us today then is, is how do we combat, how do we battle, how do we wage war or fight against that drift, that drifting away from the Lord? How do we stay firmly rooted, strong in our faith? Well, Esther tells us and closes the book of Esther by telling us we remember, remember. Again, that's what today is all about. So let me walk us through the rest of Esther, the rest of Esther chapter 9 and the first few verses of chapter 10. Um, I'll do my best to provide some commentary along the way of what is happening in the end of Esther, and then we'll close everything out with what I hope will be some helpful application to you and and your life. So we turn to Esther, and we're going to be in verse 20 today, Esther 9 verse 20. At this point, uh, we have to understand, all of the major drama has been resolved. Okay? There's no more conflict. It's over. It's time to celebrate. And this is what God's word says. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. It's roughly uh, 2,000 miles or 3,000 kilometers obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same, roughly the month of March, year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So here we see uh, Mordecai sets apart two specific days. The 14th, 
and the 15th of Adar. And he does that for the purpose of celebration, to celebrate God's faithfulness, to celebrate God's rescue and deliverance of his people through what seemed like an impossible circumstance. And this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's at least worth mentioning this morning. That Old Testament feast, anytime you see this idea of a feast, a festival, Old Testament feasts clearly reveal to us that God endorses sanctified celebrations. God endorses sanctified celebrations. Let's call them uh, holy parties, if you will, all right? That he actually wants us to feast. He wants us to be with friends. He wants us to to laugh, to to listen and play music, to to dance. Most of us, he wants to dance. (laughs) Maybe not me. (laughs) He wants us to, though, be be joyous and to, to celebrate to be glad, to, to give gifts to one another. And, and the reason that I, I, I bring this up is because so many people, maybe even some of you here, have the opposite view of God, don't, don't you? You believe that he's just some stern, mean old man sitting in a corner up in the heavens who, who never smiles. He's just looking down from heaven with a, a stern face waiting to punish people. That's, the, that's what you think of when you think of, of God. But that's not what we see here, and it's not the God that we see throughout the scriptures. You see, throughout the Bible, we actually see a God who created laughter, who created joy, who created humor. He created celebration. And because of that, he actually invites us to join him in those things. And that's why, by the way, there are actually, if you read through the Old Testament, there are actually six mandated parties, feasts, that are given in the Old Testament. Some of them are just a day. Others of them, two, I believe, specifically, are one week long, seven days. Here's the law. You have to party for seven days. you imagine? And that doesn't even include the weekly required Sabbath day which was a weekly day of rest given by God for the purpose, again, of feasting, of worship and resting. A weekly day to enjoy family, to enjoy fellowship, to enjoy friends. And I just say this to say, again, God is all about, we need to know this, God is all about feasting. He's all about joy. He's all about celebration. And so I do think it's worth asking this morning, do you think of God like this? Do you see God in this light, that he is the author and center of joy? He is the creator of of good food and and laughter and and music and and gift giving. All of these types of things are designed by him for us to enjoy. And they're ultimately for the purpose of stirring our, our hearts our affections for him, to to love him, the one who gives us every good gift. So that's a little tangent. That's my little party rant. We serve a celebratory God, amen? But let's keep keep moving. Let's keep going in the story because that's not necessarily the heart of this passage. Verse 23. 
So the Jews accepted what they had started to do. In other words, they set it apart and they are joyous, glad. And what Mordecai had written to them, they accepted it. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, come back to him, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. So here, the author explains for us the origin of the name Purim, the, the name of this feast, the name of this festival. And we know the word Pur, it's sort of interesting what they did. The word Pur, it's actually not a Hebrew word. Uh, it's actually a Persian word. Um, and so the Jews actually take a Hebrew word ending, which is im, and they stick it on a Persian word, which is the empire that they were under in exile, Pur, and there you have it, Purim, very creative, okay, Purim. And it's meant to, it's meant to refer to the lots, or we said lots, or kind of like dice, the dice that Haman threw or cast to determine the death and the date of the death of the Jews. But of course, ultimately in the casting, in the throwing of those dice, we know that God changed the result. He flipped everything upside down and turned Haman's evil plans on their head and rescued his people. And so ultimately, Purim, when you think about Purim, it's meant to be this subtle nod to the fact that the roll of the lots, the casting of those dice, ultimately were not in the hands of Haman. They were in the hands of the Lord. That God is sovereign, that he is providential, that everything is in his hands and nothing happens apart from his hands. That's the significance of that term Purim. Then the text says, therefore, because of all of that, it was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And we don't have this on the screen, but if you do have a copy of God's word, you see there from verse 29 and verse, to verse 32, the end of chapter 9, we see Esther herself puts her, Queen Esther, puts her stamp of approval on this plan. She's in agreement with Mordecai. This should happen. This should be a holiday. She is also, like Mordecai, passionate about this day or these two days being set apart and remembered. And so she sends out her endorsement of Mordecai's law. And again, from that day forward, Purim, 
join the other Jewish feasts. It was included in the other Jewish festivals to remember the Jewish people's exile, the threats against them, and their survival. And I already said this, but even to this day, Jewish people celebrate this together. They come together to eat great food. They come together and they discuss the faithfulness of God. They come together and they they take collections, offerings to give to the poor in their community. And traditionally, on Purim, to the day of Purim, to open the feast, they come together and they read from Deuteronomy 25, specifically verses 17 through 19, which records there God's promise to deliver his people from the Amalekites, from the Agagites. So they remember God's faithfulness all the way back from the time of Moses, uh, coming fulfilled a thousand years later. They come together to, to be reminded that God keeps his word through the ages, that he is faithful to his word and to his promises. And then after that, the entire book of Esther in one sitting, one reading, is read. So that they can again be reminded year after year after year, after year, last 2,500 years, be reminded of the hidden hand of God that is at work in their lives amidst a world that is so full of chaos, confusion, and certain uncertainty. So we have to understand, Esther is a treasured book amongst the Jewish people because it gives them hope just as now it's meant to give you and I hope because of the faithfulness of God. In fact, just a quick a historical note, it's pretty interesting. You can read historical record of this, but we know that even during World War II, when the European Jews were imprisoned in Nazi death camps together, this horrific act against Jewish people, we know that they largely turned to the book of Esther, that even though it would cost them their lives, actually it became illegal for anyone to carry Esther because um, Nazi soldiers knew that it was offering them hope and encouragement. And even still, they would risk their lives. See, Jewish people, most of them have a lot of the Old Testament memorized. And so they would recite the book of Esther by memorization in the camps or men or women would risk their lives. They would write it down on pieces of clothes and whatever they had and pass the book of Esther around to show them or to remind them that, that God will, will keep his promises, that, that he will be faithful, that even though our, we've been separated from family and friends, we see death literally in front of us, that God will be faithful just as he was to Esther, just as he was throughout our entire History. So Esther is a, it's a beautiful story. It's an encouraging story and it's so relevant for us even to this day. You know, I think one of the great ironies, we've been studying through the book of Esther and we've seen all these ironies throughout the book, right? But I think one of the greatest ironies in all of this is that if you think about the story of Esther, We have this great Persian empire, right? Like historically we know it's one of the greatest empires in world history that had all these incredible leaders who write, literally write these unbreakable laws 
that cannot be changed. They are uh, absolute, authoritative, because they saw themselves, again, as demigods, right? Little gods. Persian empires, emperors were gods in society because they're all-powerful, at least in their view. They're unstoppable. No one can come against them. And yet, listen, today, today, the Persian empire no longer exists, right? There's no more kings. There's no more Persian law. None of us hold to Persian law anymore. These unbreakable laws that can't be changed. These unstoppable laws that, you know, can't, no one could come against. We don't follow those things anymore. But you know what does exist? Purim. 2,500 years later. Again, Jewish people still celebrate Mordecai and Esther's law. Which again is a reminder to us, an encouragement to us of who is really ruling the course of human history. Not Mordecai and Esther, but their God. Our God. Well now, what I want to do, attempt to do, is wrap up this this book of Esther. And to do that, I want to give you uh, two, two major application points that are centered around this Feast of Purim that I hope will connect Esther's story to your story, to our story. And so here's the first observation I want to make about Purim, but also this whole entire book of Esther. Number one, Purim points to, or the book of Esther points to the importance of remembering. The importance of remembering. You see, the whole point of Purim And really, Esther was and is to remind God's people across the ages of God's faithfulness in the dark. If you find yourself in a dark season of life, a low point, and you need hope and encouragement, Esther is for you. As an annual celebration, Purim is a reminder that Following God is a way of life. It's not just a one-off decision. It's not just a decision one time you made when you were like 13 years old. That, oh yeah, I believe Jesus and then I turn and go my own way. It's a way of life. Following the Lord is a way of life. Purim is meant to be a reminder that God is present and at work even when we can't see it or might not even have the faith to see it. It's a reminder that nothing and no one can stop God's purposes. Not even the most powerful pagan empire in the entire world. It's a reminder that there has always been opposition to God's people. It's a reminder that God specializes, actually. He specializes in using compromised, imperfect people with sketchy, messed up, past like us for his perfect purposes. It's a reminder that even when all seems lost, there is reason for hope. You see, we are called, all of us are called to richly and to deeply remember, to to recall and to trust who God is, who we are, all that God has done, and all that he is for us. Remembering means that we we take, actually, what we know about God, 
We, we draw strength from those truths of who he is and what he's done and who he's called us to be. And then we bank our lives on those truths day by day by faith. That's what it means to remember. And by the way, uh, remembering in a very real sense or Old Testament, or Old Testament remembering is synonymous with New Testament faith. They're almost one in the same. That's why time and time again, we're called to this throughout the scriptures. Like in Psalm 63, verse 6, the psalmist says this, I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. In other words, when I wake up to when I fall asleep, I remember the Lord. Or Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I remember his works. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old, your faithfulness, your miracles, how you came through time and time again. Or I love this one. It's on the screen. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. In the midst of the devastation, understand, we might actually study this book in the fall, Lamentations. We'll see. I'm praying through it. Um, In the midst of devastation and destruction of the city of Jerusalem, Everything is crawling, uh, crumbling around them. It's horrific. Jeremiah writes these words. He says this. He's, he's literally watching his city and his people be destroyed. He says this, but this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Or in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.8, the Apostle Paul says to us, Remember, keep to mind Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. Remember the resurrection. You feel hopeless? Remember the resurrection. You're in a low season? Remember the resurrection. Death is near to you. Remember the resurrection. Or Ephesians 2.11, Remember, he says, that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. He says, remember, remember who you once were. Remember who, what you've been called out of. Remember that, yeah, you're in a dark season now. Remember you yourself were darkness and now you've been called into light. Remember. And these are just a few examples. See, it's, it's incredible to me. I, 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 was really, I was really wrestling with this idea of remembering this week. And just this, this amazing truth that throughout the entire scriptures, God is not shy about calling us to remember over and over again. And it's, it's funny, I was thinking, why? Over and over, like, I already, I already know this. I, I've read this. I see this over and over again. Why? And I was thinking about that, not from God, but from other people. And I was thinking, How do I normally feel when somebody tells me something that I already know? What do we normally say, maybe to ourselves, or maybe out loud, some of you are a little bit more bold with your words. But when you hear something, or someone like, you do something, and someone tells you what you should be doing, what's normally your thought? I know. Right? Some of you know, you did that this morning. We're going to be late. I know, right? You know, we've got to get first in line. There's barbecue. I know, right? But you know, you know what I mean. Like, your boss tells you to do something, 
that you already know or you've already been doing? I know, right? Many times we do that with frustration. And, and I was thinking about it in my own heart, in my own life, that like the reason I say I know to God is because of actually my pride and my arrogance. But God pushes through that pride and arrogance and says, oh, I, I know that you've heard this. Uh, you can repeat it. Like you've memorized it. I know that you actually, you recognize this idea of remembering as an idea. But listen, your life gives evidence to the fact that you don't really know me. You don't really know what I've done for you as well as you say that you do. And the solution to that is to remember Because so many times we drift. So he says, remember. Remember. We're being pulled in a thousand different directions all the time. Remember. Remember. (laughs) Remember. Right? We are called to remember frequently. Why? Because we forget. We forget over and over again. I call it, we get gospel amnesia, right? We forget, it's like short-term memory loss. I know the gospel, I believe it. All my life you have been faithful, right? All my life you've so, so good. And you go out here and you're like, get out of the way, it's barbecue, you know. You know, I'm going to stab you with a fork, you know. It's like, all right, man, your goodness is running after you, right? right? We get gospel amnesia. Right? We forget actually who God is. We forget who we are. We forget our identity. Again, we, we stray away. Right? We grow complacent. Why? Why? Because sin has a way of wrapping its arms of unbelief around our hearts and, and, and it's strangling, it tends to strangle us out, entangle us. And listen, not only that, but we know that sometimes, actually more than we even maybe recognize or realize, our feelings, oh, they're so powerful, aren't they? But our feelings, our feelings can sometimes even outweigh what we know about God. And in those moments, particularly when God seems silent, when we're not getting an answer, when we're not receiving like the answer we've been looking for, it's easy to believe the lies of this world. And then what happens in that moment when we forget? What happens when we fail to remember? When we don't draw strength from the Lord, but we try to draw strength from other people and other things like ourselves. What, what happens? Well, we tend to grow afraid. We tend to get anxious. We tend to, to doubt God. We begin to, if we're not careful, even question his motives. We can become cynical. We can become bitter, wondering if God cares, if he really listens to us at all. And in those times of doubt, it's so easy for our affections to be misplaced. And then before you know it, we compromise. We grow apathetic. We fall asleep spiritually. And then 
we actually lose the power to resist sin. We lose the power to resist that temptation that's coming against us. We can find ourselves doing things we never thought we'd ever do. Find ourselves saying things, speaking things we we never thought that we would say, and we end up becoming someone we never thought we'd become. So do you see how important it is for us to remember? To consistently recall who God is and what he has done. Not only that, but how important it is to surround ourselves with people who are doing the same. To surround ourselves with people who are pushing us forward to those things. And by the way, this is why we have so many tools to help us remember. Things like gathering with the local church. Uh, listening listening to, to Jesus-centered, Christ-centered teaching. Right? Singing songs that recall the gospel. Reading God's word. It's why we have the opportunity to pray. It's why we're given the opportunity to fast. It's, it's why we serve. It's why we devote ourselves to discipleship. I mean, all of these things and and many more are, are aimed at reminding us of who God is, what he's accomplished in his son, Jesus Christ, and who we are in him. And in many ways, I was thinking this uh, as well, in many ways, that's really my goal every week when I'm up here as well. Like, in, in some ways, if I was to sum up my job, this is it. To just simply stand up here and help you remember that's it. Not tell you something new. Maybe it's new, like this, this little Greek word or this a, a holy war thing. You know, like there's something there. But it's all truth that is in God's word. My, my job is simply this, to help you remember the gospel. To remember his faithfulness. To remember his, his love. To remind you that you are forgiven. To remind you that you are treasured. To remind you that no one can ever take you out of his hand. Your life might feel like a dead end right now. But God is for you. And he is ultimately leading you back home to him. That's a promise. So let me ask you, how are you this morning, today, this week, in your life, how are you doing with remembering Not only that, though, it's worth meditation on this outside of this moment. What is your plan for staying awake to the promises and purposes of God? Listen, you need to have a plan. A mentor once told me, if you fail to plan, plan to fail. That never left me. I find myself oftentimes when I have drifted or gone away, it's because I don't have a plan. I'm not strategic. Again, this is a a war, right? It's a battle. We talked about this last week. We have to be tacticians. We have to be strategic. How are we going to combat the enemy? What's your plan? And by the way, most wars aren't fought alone. It's why we have the body of Christ. It's why we link arms with one another to take us through because we can't do it on our own. The enemy wants to isolate you. 
He wants to convince you, by the way, that you can make it. Throughout the pandemic, that was um, I, not in an unhealthy way, but in a healthy way, that was my greatest fear, actually, for not just myself, but for you. During the pandemic, as we did everything online, my fear is that somehow the enemy would convince you that you're okay doing church alone. That you look at the last two and a half years and you look at where you were before and then you go throughout two and a half years and you think, you know what, there's not much difference. Gathering with a local church, being with people, serving people, worshiping corporately, singing praises, being in a room, hearing God's word together. Like, ah, that was, it was pretty good, but two and a half years, now I can watch it on my phone, not much has changed. It's my, my big fear. We've convinced, our, convinced ourselves more that being in isolation and independence is okay. It's not. It's not God's plan for you. It's not God's plan for the church. It's not even a definition of church. It's not. If it was up to me in our presence, and I know it's working, but if it was up to me, the leaders know this, I would take that camera and on it. But we're in that present age, so I'm trying to be, you know, young and whatever. And there are real issues, and people watch around the world and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that's great. But ultimately, this is the church gathered together. It's an assembly, meaning that we have to assemble together. So how are you doing with remembering? Who's helping you to remember? How do you remember by yourself all the time? You need people. So what's your plan? doesn't have to be complicated, but what's your plan? Or maybe more urgently, for some of us, we need to ask ourselves, and this is much more serious, but you have to ask yourself really, truly, have I already fallen asleep? Have I assimilated into the culture? Have I assimilated myself into the world's values, in the world's virtues? Am I compromising and for you, the, the short answer is this, and the short encouragement is this, it's important for you to know it's not too late. It's not too late. Maybe God actually brought you here this morning not to eat free food, but for the reason that you would hear, it's not too late for you to turn back to Jesus by faith that he will receive you. He's waiting for you with open arms to, to help you to flourish, to give you life, to give you true joy and true peace. You just have to turn from yourself and turn to him. So that's number one, the importance of remembering. And then number two, Purim and Esther reminds us that trial and trouble are often the backdrop to God's unfolding story in our lives. Boy, I wish I could have said that in five words, but it is what it is. I try to keep it short, usually. Trial and trouble are often the backdrop, the background, to God's unfolding story in our lives. I've mentioned this before, much earlier in the sermon series, but it's, it's a central theme in the book of Esther, so much so that I want to close out the book mentioning this again. Again, we need to remember the context of Esther. I remind you of it every single week on purpose to get to this moment. 
Remember the context. It's very dark. As the book opens, God's people have been exiled for a hundred years. They were stripped from their homes, from their city. They watched everything burn down, separated from loved ones, before their eyes, watching loved ones killed. They are now a hundred years from that in a land ruled by a pagan world superpower. And then you add on top of that compromise, drunkenness, sexual immorality, fear, genocide, people being executed. It's a dark scene. That's Esther. And yet, this is the point, and this is the point. It's in this darkness that served as the backdrop for God's providential plans and his purposes. It's in that darkness, it's in that moment when God seems most absent that he is at work for the benefit of his people and the glory of his name. And listen, I know personally, I really do, I know personally what it's like to doubt God and his goodness. To literally look up at my ceiling. I'm using that as an actual phrase. Look up my ceiling because I've done this. And say, God, where are you? Where are you? And maybe you're there as well. Or maybe you've been there. Bad news from the doctor. Abused as a kid. Addictions, infertility, brokenness. Where in the world is God in that? I don't mean to to downplay any of this or your pain or struggle, mine, but the simple answer is that if you belong to Jesus, he was with you then, he is with you now, and not only is he with you, he's not done with you. And here's where... Here's where we often misunderstand God's purposes in the world. I know for a long time in my life, um, I missed this. And I think, sadly, so many Christians across the world miss this. So many churches don't preach this. And I think that's one of the reasons we have so much doubt. See, God does not promise us easy or pain-free lives, even any more than an army general promises an easy, pain-free battle to the soldiers he sends out into the field. No general looks at his soldiers and says, hey, you're going to go out into this battle, it's going to be easy and pain-free. Everything's going to be okay. And we too were in a battle, and so God doesn't say that to us. Listen, God does not promise, he actually does not promise to end the battle here and now. But he does promise to be with us in the battle here and now. And he does promise to transform us through the battle here and now. Hear me. Hear me. Someone needs to hear this this morning. I'm so sure. He does not promise to end the darkness here and now, which we all want, right? We all want it to end. We want it to stop. But he does not promise to end the darkness here and now. But but he does promise to be in the darkness with us. 
here and now. He does promise to transform us through the darkness. He does promise to use us through the darkness. Right? We don't know all the reasons God does what he does. We do not know all the reason God allows what he allows. But, but, knowing all that we know of his character, we can trust him. And knowing all that we know of Jesus, we know that he is for us. He is not against us. So that we can trust him in the dark. I love, I love Isaiah 43. Incredible passage of scripture. I want to read this to you. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. It's amazing. It says this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Redeemed you means to reconcile, to I've brought you back to myself. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. He says, I have called you by name. He knows you personally. Why? For you are mine. When you, listen, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Did you hear that? Did you hear it in there? It's when you pass through the waters. When you walk through fire. It's not if. It's when. It's when. But when we do, he says he will be with us. You see, trial and trouble, water and flame are often the backdrop of God's unfolding story in our lives. Why? Why? Because we live in a sin-ravaged world with real enemies. Satan, our flesh, right? the world. And that means, listen, that means that right now we are not in peacetime. This is not peacetime. Life is war. Yes, one day the battle will end fully when King Jesus returns. But until then, trial and trouble are often the backdrop of his unfolding providential purposes in our lives in the world. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? Well, it means let's not be surprised. When, when life gets difficult, when life is dark, Let's not be surprised. Let's not be taken off guard by this. It's to be expected. Let's not be surprised, but instead let's recall. Let's remember how God works and how he has always worked. He has showed us. He has showed us in a hundred ways through a hundred people in a hundred different situations, in a hundred different contexts, through the scriptures, in lives around us, in our very own lives, that we can trust him in the dark. We can trust him in the seeming silence. This is so important for us to understand. Trials, trials and troubles are actually not obstacles in God's purposes. They're not. No, they they are the very backdrop on which God's purposes unfold. Listen, don't mishear me either. It doesn't mean that darkness is good. Right? It doesn't mean our trials are right. It doesn't mean we don't grieve, we don't have real pain, but it does infuse our dark seasons, our trials, with meaning and with hope. So let me ask you 
today, what difference, what difference would it make in your own life to view the difficulty you're facing right now, not as an obstacle. Again, yes, it's painful. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we grieve. We don't discount that. Never. We shouldn't. But we don't see those things as an obstacle, but rather as a backdrop for God's unfolding purposes in our lives. As a backdrop for, for God shaping you to become a certain kind of purpose, uh, person. As a backdrop through which he is using you in the lives of others. As a backdrop to, to bring you into, to draw you into deeper joy. Because by the way, that's exactly what he's doing. So again, how can we see the way that he sees? Again, I think that comes back to remembering. But then I want to end where Esther ends. Chapter 10. And there's just three verses. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This is how Esther, the book of Esther, closes. It says this. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Those books existed for a long time. We don't have those books anymore. We also know that King Ahasuerus himself, uh, history tells us he was killed in his sleep, murdered. And it says this, For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He took Haman's place. And he was... Mordecai was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to everyone. Everyone in the empire, everyone under his care, his rule. And that there concludes the story of Esther. The story ends with Mordecai second in rank to the king. He's second in charge. And it's sort of a strange ending, isn't it? After all the drama we've been through the last couple months together, all the twists and turns, conflict, right? I was like, get to the end and you want that, like, that bang. Like, there it is, right? And I'd yell and yeah, we'd all clap and Esther, right? It feels like there should be more. So why these words here? Why does Esther end this way? Well, I believe that this is written here to put Esther into perspective for us. It puts the whole story in perspective. You know why? Because life just tends to go on, doesn't it? Life just tends to move on. Taxes increased. We just came off of a Great miracle, a story. God is faithful. And the next sentence is, and King Ahasuerus raised taxes. <laughs> Life goes on. Taxes increase. Pagan kings still rule. And God's people have to go back to their everyday lives. 
their everyday, ordinary lives. You know, think about this. It's a great story, but think about this more deeply. Mordecai has power, but listen, he is not the king. There is peace in Esther, but listen, God's people are still in exile. They're still not in Jerusalem. They're still not back home, which means even as Esther closes, the battle still continues. There was still much more to long for. There's still much to hope for. Listen, there was a great reversal that occurred in Esther. But, but, the ultimate reversal had not yet come. And so still they wait, still they hope, still they long for. You see, they longed for a king whose reign and rule would never end. A king who would sit on the throne of David. They were looking and waiting for a king that was prophesied to them and promised to them. A king that would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. But listen, that king didn't come. Not in their lifetime. No, it was actually 500 years after Esther. Out of nowhere. During a time of deep darkness, no coincidence, under the tight grip of another pagan empire, maybe even more powerful, the Romans, a baby was born in fulfillment of this prophecy and promise. And Jesus arrived to fulfill these words. He came to bring the kingdom, a spiritual kingdom first, The physical kingdom will come later. He came to bring sight to the blind. He came helping the deaf to to hear. He came to help the lame walk. He came to set the possessed, the captives, the prisoners free. Every single place that he went, things got better. And he came to show us that no one, absolutely no one is too far gone, too guilty, too sinful, too dirty to not get in on his forgiveness and his love and his grace to join him in his story. King Jesus came to save sinners and his kingdom has no end. See, the story of Esther leaves us longing for a greater king. It it leaves us longing for a greater kingdom. It it leaves us waiting with hope-filled trust for ultimate victory. And in Jesus, we now have that king. We have that kingdom. And we have that victory, amen? But even so, even so, even though that is true, the battle still rages on, doesn't it? The battle against our enemy, the battle against this world, the battle against ourselves, our flesh still continues to try to take its grip on us. And so for now, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we fight. We fight, how? By remembering the story that we are a part of. We fight by remembering who our king is and who we are in him. 
We, we fight by remembering that the king has come and that he is coming again. And we remember that even, even though life might seem dim, even though life might seem dark, it might seem hopeless, God may, may even seem absent at times. But we remember his faithfulness through the ages. And so we trust him. We fix our eyes on him. Knowing that in the end, he will be faithful to his promises. That he will bring us home to him. Amen? Let me pray for us.